So good afternoon, everybody, and welcome to this fourth and final uh, seminar, both of the Israeli study seminar and the Reconstruct, uh, Reconsidering Early Jewish Nationalist uh, Ideology seminar. Um, I can't remember if I just said I'm Peter Bergman, but if I say <laughs> that's a sign of my age. <laughs> anyway, today it's really a pleasure to, to, have, uh, to, to be able to introduce our speaker, who's both a friend and a colleague, um, Rose Stair. And uh, Rose will be talking to you about age and gender in German language cultural Zionism. Rose at the moment is a DPhil student in theology and religion at the University of Oxford, so here. <laughs> Her thesis is entitled A Homeland in the Home Age, Gender, oh sorry, in the Home, sorry. A Homeland in the Home, Age, Gender and Religion in German Cultural Zionism, 1897 to 1905. She previously studied at the University of Chicago Divinity School, and she's published on the life and thought of Paulo Winkler Buber and works on other lesser known figures within the German cultural Zionist community. Rose, it's really a pleasure to have you here. Well, thanks so much, Peter. Um, yeah, and it's really a, a pleasure to be here. Um, uh, so today I'm going to be talking um, about a cultural Zionist community who were active in Central Europe in the early years of the 20th century. Um, and before giving a little bit of context um, about the nature of this group, I thought I would just start by kind of uh, flagging the kind of plan for this talk and something about my overall approach. Um, so what I kind of hope to do um, across the next 40 minutes or so is that uh, make the case um, that the dual analytical lenses of age and gender are a kind of um, fruitful uh, approach to, um, to studying this cultural Zionist community. Um, uh, Jakob, did you just share the PowerPoint on the screen? I don't think so, but... Okay, it's just popped up. Uh, that's fine. <laughs> um, <laughs> I was going away again now, thank you. Yeah. So I'm hoping to show that this kind of lens of age and gender is a useful way um, to consider the thought um, and visual culture of this cultural Zionist community. Um, and I hope to suggest that by using this kind of dual lens, um, it can help us to kind of constellate um, kind of individual motifs and ideas that may already be familiar to us, um, such as the idea of the muscle view, and then it can help situate them in their kind of broader conceptual um, context. Um, I'd also suggest that age and gender help to provide a visual and metaphorical language um, which is used to kind of express some ideas of central importance to this community, um, such as the uh, relationship between the kind of collective Jewish people and the uh, uh, individual living in a body. Um, and I'll also be thinking particularly about the relationship between the past, the present and future through this uh, dual lens of age and gender. Um, so as Peter said, I'm in the Theology and Religion Department and I very much see my research as situated within religious studies. Um, I also uh, use lots of tools which are drawn from gender studies, uh, particularly when it comes to thinking about how social systems like age and gender are constructed. Um, and some other kind of core questions that animate uh, my research is thinking about um, who is written into history or into the present moment, who is written out or excluded on the basis of these kind of um, these structures and symbols, um, and to kind of use this approach to think about the relationships to uh, religion in different aspects of Jewish tradition or history, uh, which are kind of um, expressed um, through motifs relating to age and gender. Um, so in my talk today, I'll be um, primarily sharing um, some instances of visual art uh, which were either produced by or disseminated by this cultural Zionist community um, and thinking about age and gender in relationship to them. 
Uh, but before turning to those um, instances of visual art, I'll just share a few words um, about this, uh, this cultural Zionist community. Um, so they're typically referred to as either the democratic faction or young Jewish Zionism, uh, young, young Jewish Zionism. Um, and this latter uh, description um, highlights kind of from the outset uh, the importance of um, the ideal of youth or youthfulness to this group. And they certainly kind of presented themselves as um, a kind of young uh, generation of kind of rebels within uh, the kind of broader Zionist community um, and as kind of a, a group that were offering a kind of youthful and fresh perspective on some kind of broader questions. Um, the names of democratic faction is generally used um, to describe them um, in relation to their role in the development of Zionist party politics. And it's often said that they were the kind of first uh, self-identified faction amongst broader Zionist community. Um, they're kind of this more institutional um, side of their um, activity um, was uh, kind of undertaken with the leadership of Chaim Weizmann and Liam Rotskin. Um, and as interesting as this side of their kind of activity was for the kind of development of kind of intra-Zionist inter um, politics um, and uh, factions, that's less my focus. Um, I tend to focus more um, on the work of this group in creating um, culture disseminating it through uh, literature and art exhibitions. And I really think about the internal logic of the kind of images um, and poems they produced. And on that side of their activity, their primary figures are people like Martin Buber, Bertolt Bible, and Ian Lillian. Um, so something that was shared across all of the members of the community was a real commitment to um, the central importance of Jewish culture and education. Um, which for them was the kind of absolute prerequisite for any successful future Zionist activity. Uh, they argued that a kind of a collective sense of Jewishness could only really be achieved um, through engagement with Jewish culture. And so they set about kind of um, encouraging the creation of Zionist art, poetry, literature, and sharing this um, with the broader community. Um, and they achieved this through um, a couple of routes. Uh, firstly, they um, uh, at the Fifth Zionist Congress in 1901, uh, kind of a, a parallel to some of the kind of more disruptive activities um, in terms of claiming themselves a stake as a kind of faction. They also um, uh, established a kind of interesting and significant art exhibition, um, which for them was evidence of the kind of flourishing uh, body of Jewish art, uh, which was kind of in the process of being created. Um, that year, they also established the Yiddish Verlag Publishing House, um, through which they continued to put out across the subsequent years a number of really interesting art, uh, art and kind of poetry collections, which once again demonstrated the wealth of um, Jewish cultural resources that were available um, and that they kind of mobilised towards their, uh, their kind of Zionist ideological claims. Um, so I think that's enough on the background of them, although I'm happy to come back uh, in questions to talk about that a little bit more if it's of interest. But I'll turn now um, to um, some of their visual art and talk in a little bit more depth um, about the motifs um, within it. So I'm going to try and show my screen. I hope this works. Um, let's see if that's working. Okay, I hope you can all see that. 
Um, so here we have um, some um, images produced by Ian Lillian, uh, which um, depict um, two examples of the ideal of the, uh, the male muscular gene. Um, and this um, idea was most famously promoted um, by uh, Max Nordell, who um, suggested that the uh, kind of physical vitality, strength and discipline that had been in evidence um, in a kind of ancient chapter of Jewish history um, had been suppressed um, by the kind of harsh um, environmental conditions of exilic life, uh, but that this kind of latent Jewish strength could nevertheless be cultivated again um, um, and used um, in the kind of Zionist communities, um, uh, kind of, uh, self-determination and kind of working towards um, a Zionist future. And this um, idea kind of promoted by Max Nordau and, and uh, kind of um, resonating amongst the kind of flourishing Jewish gymnastic societies, that was also a very um, present feature in the kind of young Yiddish cultural Zionist um, art. And we have a couple of uh, fine examples of that from Lillian here. Um, so the image on the left-hand side um, is my really notable book uh, from 1900 called Yuda, which was a collaboration um, with a philosophic um, German nationalist poet uh, called Boris von Munchausen, and he set out to create um, examples of um, German language verse that he thought kind of captured something of the noble Jewish or Hebrew spirit, um, and so. Lillian produced a number of illustrations to accompany this um, this poetry, um, and the book was really uh, very, very popular. It was um, celebrated in the Zionist press and had a very broad readership. Um, so Munchausen's poem about Samson um, really emphasises his um, his muscular strength um, and also the erotic appeal that this strength um, awarded him. So there's repeated descriptions of Samson kind of uh, strolling through different areas with a lion skin uh, kind of slung across his broad frame and, and the kind of erotic appeal that this won him in the eyes of his admirers. In his um, accompanying illustration, Lillian doesn't um, focus so much on his erotic encounters, but instead shows him uh, broad and very tall towering over the lion um, and kind of demonstrating uh, the kind of paradigmatic event um, that showed off his strength. And yeah, as you can see, he's ripping open the lion's jaws, his bare hands, um, and it's really a kind of paradigm of this um, physical ability. Uh, the right-hand image comes from a few years later and is the product of another collaboration. Uh, Lily was here producing illustrations to accompany um, the translation of the Bible into German. Um, and this comes um, from the story of Moses breaking the tablets. Um, uh, like um, Samson, uh, this Moses uh, is extremely strong and muscular and in the act of kind of lifting the tablets above his head and showing off the strength of his arms. There's a couple of other notable features of this image of um, Moses, um, the first of which is the clothing. Uh, you can see he's wearing kind of fringed or beaded um, item of clothing, which is complemented by various accessories, including some kind of jeweled belt, a matching headpiece, and a striped cap. Um, in the early years of the 20th century, Lillian took a number of um, research trips to Palestine and purchased items of clothing and jewellery in markets, took lots of pictures, 
and brought these back with him um, to Germany where he dressed up models in what he kind of suggested um, was this sort of um, authentic or kind of orientalized um, kind of ancient Jewish uh, garb. And for him, these became some of the symbols of this kind of orientalized, exoticized vision of something kind of authentically ancient and Jewish. So he has here Moses uh, wearing this kind of typical clothing and accessories. The other notable feature which you may have spotted um, is that this Moses's face is uncannily um, similar to Theodore Herzl's, um, including the very kind of stylized, dark, long and forward pointing beard. Um, so uh, Lillian often um, portrayed biblical figures or angels uh, with Herzl's face. And I think there's a couple of things that happen um, through this, um, this style of drawing. We first have the kind of rooting of uh, kind of muscularity in general within the biblical past. Um, but by placing um, Herzl's face in there as well, there's an immediate link being drawn between this um, biblical past and kind of early paradigm Jewish ability and, uh, um, and the present kind of Zionist moment. Um, so uh, this kind of uh, relationship being drawn between the biblical past and the Zionist uh, present or future is something that we see recurring through lots of um, lots of the visual art produced by this community. Um, to turn to a second um, image of um, a Russell Jew from this group, uh, we have here a painting um, by Lassa Uri, who, um, unlike Lillian, he wasn't active in kind of self-identifying as a Zionist, but he was at least socially involved uh, with the um, young Jewish Zionist community. Um, Martin Buber was a friend of his um, and a keen um, fan of his work and he interpreted lots of various paintings including this one um, as containing a profound uh, Zionist message. Um, so the painting on the left we have um, only a kind of poor quality reproduction of it um, and the painting has been lost uh, but it would have originally been two or three meters tall um, and had very vibrant colours. Um, and the dark patch uh, towards the bottom left, that would have been a kind of deep bright blue um, representation of a body of water. Um, so in the image here we have Adam and Eve after the expulsion um, from paradise walking towards this body of water and facing over it um, perhaps to the horizons beyond and this is certainly how Buber and others interpreted the image. Um, unlike some uh, kind of well-known Christian depictions of the expulsion, uh, Adam and Eve are not bent over, they're not in anguish or expressing kind of shame um, about their condition, but they're standing up kind of tall and straight um, and looking ahead. Uh, and like Lillian's um, drawings, we have Adam here as a kind of paradigm of this real um, muscularity. Uh, this sketch on the right hand side, which was a study for this painting, that uh, shows in a little bit more detail the kind of um, thickness of Adam's neck and shoulders. Um, and what's significant, I think, here, um, as well as having another illustration of muscularity, is the contrast between Adam's uh, figure and Eve's. Um, and I haven't found any um, examples of women, uh, biblical women or Zionist women, being painted with or drawn with the same degree of um, muscularity as the men. Um, this Eve is quite typical of depictions of the women who accompanied the masculine men as being quite slight, uh, feminine, uh, curvaceous with um, kind of long flowing hair and we'll see more examples of this uh, further on in my talk. Um, yeah, so I'll come back to the kind of gender ideas in a little while but for the moment I just want to show um, a few examples 
of some of the different models of age um, which were um, exhibited or published in conjunction with these images of kind of muscular youthful vitality. Um, so we have here um, a few paintings from um, a series produced by the artist Joseph Israels, who um, was a little bit older and not socially integrated within the community um, in the same way, uh, but was nevertheless um, a favourite and whose art was repeatedly exhibited or included um, in their publications. Um, his scenes um, of the Amsterdam Jewish community um, all take place um, inside um, houses or other buildings. Um, and typically show kind of relatively dark and kind of gloomy um, internal spaces, uh, which are often uh, kind of contrasted to snatches of brighter colour, green grass or blue skies through the windows, which kind of sit at the periphery of the paintings, um, such as in the right hand painting here, we can see a snatch of brighter light from the outside window. Um, but the residents of these houses um, are always kind of separated from that uh, kind of bright external light and are instead um, portrayed uh, within these spaces, typically with kind of their bodies hunched over, their faces downturned. And the title of the paintings that we have here um, are quite typical for the series. Uh, things like When One Becomes Old, Alone in the World, um, and really kind of exhibit a range of kind of uh, suffering, loneliness, poor health, coldness, um, that, that really does kind of give um, a uh, kind of portrays a picture of these um, these communities as kind of suffering through a kind of an uncomfortable form of existence. Um, here are a couple uh, more examples um, from the series um, which engage um, uh, themes that are more explicitly to do with Jewish religious practice. We have a Torah scribe on the right and on the left um, the most famous image from this series uh, which is uh, a kind of a relatively young looking man and his hair isn't white um, his face kind of seems to be uh, kind of young or early middle-aged um, sitting um, next to a stool which bears upon it about candles and a few other items uh, relating to Jewish um, ritual practice and the title of this painting the son of the old people um, for me has a kind of a couple of uh, resonances on the one hand, it's a gesture towards the uh, kind of ancient lineage of the Jewish um, people, uh, but it also, I think, describes the bodily condition that he shares with the other members of the community. And I think this is crucial. It's not just the elderly members uh, of the community in, in Israel's paintings who exhibit some of the physical frailties associated with old age, uh, being hunched over or being frail um, and so forth. It's also the younger younger men and women. And so I think a kind of association of a premature agedness kind of extends across the whole group um, and begins to really associate kind of exilic existence or life in these types of Jewish communities um, as uh, somehow kind of physically compromising. Um, and especially when these images are set in contrast to the kind of useful vitality of the biblical figures or the Zionist paradigms, uh, there really does begin to be a strong association of exilic life uh, with um, premature agedness or kind of other forms of bodily frailty. Um, to turn now to a few examples of paintings or drawings which uh, place uh, contrast within a single frame of differently aged individuals. Um, we have here first the very well-known souvenir postcard for the Fifth Zionist Congress um, produced by Lillian. Um, and this forms one of a number of images uh, with the same compositional structure. 
So in all of these images on the bottom left hand corner, uh, we have an old male representative of exilic life, um, typically uh, with a long white beard with his face downturned um, and often with kind of thorns uh, curling around him and the living uh, kind of barbs and thorns uh, were kind of recurring motif representing exilic sufferings. And so we have here, as in the other um, images from this series, this exilic representative um, contrasted to um, various symbols of the Zionist future in the upper right hand corner. There's generally um, a rising sun um, and then some other indication of something that represented this, uh, this kind of Zionist and hopeful future. Here we have a small figure walking into the distance um, with cattle um, and it's clear that this figure's body is much broader and stronger than the old man in the bottom left hand corner. Um, and the old man in the bottom left um, is either unwilling or unable to kind of look up uh, to this future despite the angel behind him who's holding it. So just to share a few other images from this series, we have here a drawing of the prophet Isaiah um, who despite being the herald of Zion is again kind of compositionally uh, severed from this, uh, this future on the right hand side of the image. He's, uh, he has his face downturned um, from it. In the distance on the right we have um, the old city of Jerusalem uh, on a hill and in front of that there's a group of dancing youths whose kind of physical vitality um, and strength um, serves as a kind of uh, contrast to Isaiah's static um, body. Uh, amongst the group, I'm not sure if you can see, there's one um, young man uh, who is shirtless and, and exhibits the same kind of typical gaudiness and muscularity that we've seen in other Lillian drawings. And with him are a group of women who are frolicking, dancing um, together. Uh, they have their typical long flowing hair, balloon skirts, and really are a kind of picture of youthful exuberance, um, producing a kind of bodily and age-related contrast to the figure on the left, as well as a kind of a link to the Zionist future. And just briefly, a last one from this image, where instead of um, youths or muscular figures, um, we just have the simple uh, Hebrew word Zion um, on this rising sun. Again, the elderly representative of exilic suffering um, is severed from it compositionally, standing on a kind of dark precipice, and then he looks towards the viewer with a tear falling from his eye and thorns curling around him. And in the background, we have pyramids and sphinx, uh, which can kind of indicate the suffering and travails of Jewish communities um, who are separated from their homeland. Um, to turn now, to another painting which puts differently aged men and women um, in kind of conjunction or contrast with one another. Um, and this is another painting or study for a painting um, by Lesser Uri again. Uh, like his Adam and Eve, uh, which uh, showed the two figures looking towards a body of water, uh, the pale white band in the background of this picture. Um, again indicates um, some kind of body of water um, and there's a horizon beyond it, which in this case is very, uh, visible to us, the viewers as well. Um, the group of men and women in this, um, in this image are organised into three distinct layers, which I suggest uh, correspond to uh, both their age and their proximity to the water in the horizon. Uh, so closest to us um, as the viewers, we have three um, elder uh, figures whose bodies are either facing towards us or towards the side, um, two men and a woman. 
On the other side of the bench, uh, kind of closer to the water, are a row of younger men and women whose bodies are turned um, towards the water and who look out over the horizon. And the third layer, which I'm not sure if you can quite see, um, uh, the closest to the water still, um, there's a young child whose face is visible just below the right hand tree. Um, and he is the kind of most, uh, most useful member of this community, is also um, kind of closest to the water. Um, and so this image um, kind of juxtaposing men and women of different ages uh, was, as I mentioned, uh, Beaver really liked Uri's paintings and he gave uh, what I think is quite a revealing interpretation of this image, uh, which uh, suggests some of the ways that um, paintings like this were um, kind of um, expounded upon by the cultural Zionist community. So I'm going to share a few excerpts of Beaver's analysis. Um, oh, I forgot to show this first. This is just a few studies um, showing a little bit more detail, the attention uh, that Uri uh, paid to the kind of age related qualities on the faces of some of the men. Um, but yet yeah, to come back to Beaver, he doesn't view these men and women as contemporaries of one another, um, but rather as representatives of different moments within Jewish history um, and kind of use this scene as kind of a cross section of Jewish history. Uh, so he says, as you can see in this quote, these people are the entire Jewish people and this evening is its entire history. And so he then offers a kind of systematic reflection on some of the different men and women in this painting um, to kind of expound upon the, um, the position in history that their bodily condition or their age-related condition represents. And so I'll just share two examples of that. Uh, the first relates to the man on the far right-hand side. And Bigger says, um, with his elbows resting on his legs, he sits in a heavy, somewhat submissive loyalty. His face has blinded him to the entire course of his fate. He expects everything from God's hand. His hands, the finely crafted bony ones, only the prayer. Um, so this older man is here associated on multiple levels with the kind of um, pious inactivity that uh, Buber suggests in his analysis. That does not have a role in the Zionist moment, but is representative of a kind of bygone era or an era that should in his uh, be bygone. Um, and the kind of motif of the old man's hands um, kind of show the kind of multiple levels um, that he uses to, uh, to draw this association. Uh, firstly, this man's hands are unable to kind of um, uh, act and build the Zionist future uh, because this old man is old. Um, his hands don't have the same strength as some of his, the kind of younger people in this image to craft this future. But his hands are also weak because he uses them only for prayer. So there's a kind of blurring of the lines between age um, and this kind of religious um, inactivity that are kind of inseparable, I think, in his account of this older figure. Uh, by contrast, we have the man next to him who's younger, and Buber says that this man is young, daring, hopeful. His free, proud gaze roams over the waters to far lands, to new beginnings, to new struggles. Here we see freedom, daring, strength, future. Um, so this man serves as a kind of simple counterpart to the older man. He's his opposite um, in both his age, his physical ability, and his kind of appetite to, um, to work towards the future. Um, and I think this is quite typical of the, um, the Zionist account, or at least this community's um, Zionist account, of the movement between the exilic period and the Zionist moment. Um, 
as a return to a kind of usefulness, uh, leaving behind um, kind of in trappings of older age, uh, which are typical uh, for them of uh, previous areas of history. Um, so I think that perhaps much of what I have said up until this point is uh, is broadly familiar um, insofar as it is a common Zionist trope to root um, motifs associated with the Zionist, uh, with Zionist activism and the Zionist future uh, within the biblical or kind of ancient Jewish um, period finding paradigms for Zionism within kind of earlier chapters of Jewish history and in so doing to kind of skip over exilic chapters of history as not necessarily offering paradigms that are kind of of use for the Zionist enterprise. Um, and despite this perhaps being a kind of familiar motif on a broader sense, I'd like to draw attention to some of the specifics of the age uh, specific articulation um, which I think uh, for me is quite interesting. Um, so what we kind of have is a movement from usefulness in the kind of biblical period to um, agedness, um, or kind of symbolic agedness in the exilic period with a return to usefulness in the Zionist uh, moment. Um, and this I think ultimately presents old age as some kind of aberration or degeneration from the kind of latent Jewish abilities that were exhibited um, kind of initially, um, and it also presents old age as something that can be overcome or resisted, um, and this I think speaks to um, some of the kind of broader Zionist motifs um, I mentioned earlier, such as gymnastic societies and other enterprises to try and cast off the almost premature age-related physical condition or discipline-related conditions of the Jewish community, which had been so kind of um, painfully seized upon in anti-Semitic discourse. So age is kind of um, old age is categorised uh, with these qualities that are kind of shed off um, in the Zionist self um, self creation or recreation. But I think for me one of the real questions that's thrown up by this um, view of history is moving from usefulness to agedness to usefulness again, um, is what the relationship is to the individual experiencing age or the ageing process. Um, and what it means about which individuals in the kind of present moment for these communities, uh, which individuals were invited in to participate in this form of kind of useful Zionist activism, and whether this kind of symbolic language was constructed at the expense of the involvement um, of certain members of the broader community. Um, and so I have two kind of particular questions relating to this. Uh, firstly, about the involvement um, of older members of the community and secondly about the involvement of women and whether their kind of age related um, well their ageing process or the different age identities they could inhabit are kind of mapped on to the male paradigms that we've seen to date um, and how much they were kind of invited in to participate in this, um, this kind of logic. Um, so I'm going to think about these two questions relating to older people and women uh, as reference to uh, two triptychs, um, which I'll show in just a moment, and I'm just going to check the time to see how long I have left. Great. Um, so the uh, first triptych I'll show is another um, painting by Uri, um, which shows uh, the progression of a man through the kind of paradigmatic life stages. 
Um, and so we see this figure um, move um, from left to right um, across the uh, life stages of kind of um, teenagehood or very kind of young uh, usefulness into a more mature adult usefulness um, and into old age. So the figure on the left um, is lying on the ground in some kind of forest um, in I think quite a relaxed pose, gazing up at the sky or the trees above him. Um, his body is kind of blending into the to the greenery around him. Um, and I think quite uh, significantly, he's also quite um, androgynous. Um, he hasn't yet reached sexual maturity. Um, in contrast, the middle figure um, has reached sexual maturity which is exhibited in the very kind of familiar visual language of broadness and muscularity. This is made particularly clear um, in the kind of composition of this middle image uh, where the man's body really stands out in sharp contrast to the plain kind of white background behind him um, and the way that he has his arms positioned uh, really does kind of indicate his great um, strength and I think in this kind of self-defensive pose He's also in quite strong contrast to the very relaxed and quite vulnerable position of the figure on the left. Um, the third uh, of these images shows the same man um, in his older age. He's uh, returned to the ground. Uh, his hair is now long and white and he's become much narrower in his body um, with his torso almost completely obscured by his legs that are folded in front of him. Um, and with the sun uh, setting, some of the setting in the background, uh, it seems like um, his life may be kind of uh, near its end. Um, and I, I think for me, this kind of account of the aging process as this very linear individual journey is something that does stand in curious tension with the kind of back and forth of different age identities. Um, uh, kind of illustrated of the Jewish uh, people or community as a whole across history that I kind of just mentioned. And it really, um, I wonder uh, for the kind of young Yiddish uh, community, what role this third, this third figure has. And um, it's clear that the second, the central image, uh, tethers to kind of other ideas about Zionist activism um, and the future. Um, and even though I think there's also a space for older individuals to be kind of productively written into past areas of Jewish history to kind of contribute to this um, transhistorical kind of uh, process um, that the Zionist community kind of present themselves as the pinnacle of. But I don't really see um, room for elderly figures such as the one on the right to actually kind of sit within the, um, the Zionist moment of history and future that the community are invoking. So I think in, in, in many ways, figures on the right are kind of um, written out of um, out of the present moment, um, which is kind of a, in some ways kind of troubling. And also, I don't know, I think just for me, it makes the movement between collective and individual stand in some degree of kind of uncomfortable tension. Um, this image also throws up with the movement from the kind of androgynous use on the left into the kind of pinnacle of male sexual maturity in the middle. Uh, broader questions um, about what sexual maturity might look like uh, for women and whether we have female equivalents of this kind of uh, paradigm of muscularity in the middle. Um, so I'm going to show another triptych now, uh, which is going back to Lillian, uh, which shows the three stages of a um, romantic or sexual encounter. And then I'll pull these up uh, one by one to look, in them, uh, look at them in a little bit more detail. But uh, broadly, the kind of narrative uh, moves from a kind of chaste um, and desirous um, embrace on the left 
into a kind of more active um, encounter in the middle um, with a kind of dark twist at the end, which we'll come back to in a moment. Um, so we have here um, a typically kind of muscular male figure standing at some distance um, from his um, uh, companion who um, has again kind of typical curves, long flowing hair um, and kind of um, physical features of uh, youthful feminine or feminine uh, vitality that we've seen in several other images. Uh, in the second um, drawing, uh, the two are no longer kind of naked. They don't have the static pose of almost kind of Greek stat uh, statues, but they're now um, wearing some of the kind of typical um, exotic uh, clothes that I mentioned are typical of Lillian's illustrations. Uh, they have kind of jewellery um, and they're also engaged in a much more passionate embrace. Um, I think their forthcoming sexual encounter is kind of made particularly clear with the not terribly subtle um, imagery that Lillian positions around them. So in the foreground we have um, an overflowing basket of ripe fruit, um, there's lovebirds in the distance and I think this all kind of points towards the women's uh, fertility and their forthcoming sexual uh, relationship. Um, the third image, which as I suggest, uh, marks something of a kind of turn, um, shows the uh, man now in the foreground uh, with a kind of tear falling from his eye uh, with his partner. Um, again, uh, naked and static, um, but on this occasion, uh, presumably dead kind of lying motionless on a, on a plinth behind him. And I'll just go back to the uh, three images altogether. And I think uh, for me, this kind of charges the first pair of images with a real sense of um, dread. Um, there's a kind of a terribly ominous end um, that, uh, I don't know, I, I don't want to kind of uh, read out from this um, kind of conclusions about the broader um, cultural Zionist um, approach to feminine sexuality, but I do think that uh, this kind of trifold image does offer a certain caution um, to looking for kind of straightforward um, female equivalents to um, male paradigms of age. And so I do see it kind of occasionally suggested that the male muscle Jew finds his um, equivalent in the kind of fertile, young, healthy women. Um, but I think the kind of you know, universal celebration of male youthful muscularity and vitality um, doesn't quite have um, a straightforward um, parallel in um, these uh, feminine images of youthfulness when we have the intrusion of these kind of ominous tones and perhaps kind of bracketing or nuancing suggestions of um, kind of female sensuality or the pursuit of kind of sexual satisfaction on the part of the beautiful young women. And so I think um, for me this kind of points to more broadly um, is the necessity when thinking about um, ideas of age and gender, thinking about how age paradigms map onto men and women differently, is how broader um, commitments, uh, for instance, towards uh, you know ideas of sexuality or the kind of uh, moral dangers that might lie there for women in pursuit of kind of sexual satisfaction or whatever it is, uh, that these kind of broader ideas relating to things like sexuality do begin to interfere um, in the kind of gendered constructions of age. Um, and we can also kind of open this up to broader questions about how these paradigms of age um, also hinge upon um, certain kind of ideals of ability 
and how there may be kind of exclusions of people um, who are not just for age related reasons, but also for disability related reasons, unable to kind of attain the uh, paradigms of kind of sexual maturity that we've um, that we see um, in some of the other images I've shown. Um, and so I'm conscious of the kind of time getting on, so I think I won't uh, talk about this um, too much more, but just really to gesture to how this plays into my broader um, project, which really tries to think about how age and gender are used to articulate um, not only kind of broader ideas uh, used by the science community, but how they also intersect with other ideas relating to sexuality, ability and so forth, and how there's a kind of mutual interplay between the social commitments of the group and their kind of embrace of the broad themes that are shared across different Zionist um, communities and how they give a particularly kind of unique vision of both the, um, the kind of biblical past, uh, the chapters of Jewish history um, and also the Zionist future. So I'll just uh, conclude with the acknowledgement um, that of course in many ways it's not surprising that a group of young, uh, primarily male intellectuals and artists might build a picture of the kind of Zionist uh, movement and the Zionist future that wasn't necessarily hospitable to older individuals or to women. Um, but what I would like to suggest is that this kind of mode of analysis which uncovers some of these kind of structural issues relating to who's brought in and who's pushed out of different moments in history um, also kind of provides a set of tools to unpick the specific um, logic through which this community expressed um, express their commitment to Zionism um, and their kind of ideas about not only the relationship between the past and the future, um, but also the relationship between the individual and the collective. And so yeah, I think that's it for me. Thanks very much for having me. Um, I'm looking forward to your questions and comments. Um, and I will say that I'm also very happy to pull up any of these images again, um, if you'd like to look at them in a little bit more detail. So yeah, thanks very much. Rose, thank you very much for a really, really interesting uh, presentation. Um, I have a million questions for you. Um, I'm going to start with maybe just one or two. I would, before I do, I think I would just request that anyone who does have a question to please type it in the Q&A panel um, and Yaakov will publish it or I'll publish it up. Um, it, it just struck me that the painting that alone in the world, I mean a lot of this, <laughs> the age stuff is unfortunately has a very biting irony <laughs> for, for me at this stage in my life, but uh, the alone in the world is how I feel every time I try to open Microsoft Teams, I got to tell you. Um, but I had a I had a more serious uh, kind of observation, I suppose. The first, the first painting, the Lillian, um, uh, they're not paintings, but you know, sketches or whatever that you showed at the beginning. There's a certain, um, well, they reminded me very much of, I mean, obviously, because they're in the same style of these kind of Art Nouveau Jugendstil um, sketches, especially the Aubrey Beardsley Salome. Um, but it, it, it seemed to me that, that there's a complete um, turning it on, on its head of kind of roles and gender roles. I mean, I think of the Art Nouveau artists, you know, um, so, you know uh, this kind of they, they were kind of celebrating masculine femininity, and this seems to actually dump uh, push that down a little bit. And I, I, I suspect there's a paradox here, and the paradox lies in Max Nordau and degeneration, whereas kind of the Art Nouveau artists were very excited about being degenerate. The, the, the Jews and the Zionists were trying to push it down, and I think that's so, so, so I think that's maybe you could comment a little bit on that before I just talk myself into a corner. <laughs> but that it just struck me as very, very interesting. Thanks, Peter. Yes, absolutely. Um, 
there are loads of um, really formal similarities between Lily and, um, and Art Nouveau. Um, even still, artists, um, not just the style of his images, but also he produced loads of um, really exquisite kind of um, book plates, uh, borders to accompany illustrations. So he was absolutely rooted um, in these kind of Art Nouveau communities. He also was active in them before he became kind of involved in Zionism. So yeah, absolutely, he's really working out of that tradition. Um, and yeah, I really uh, like your observation about this kind of turning um, the idea of the degenerate uh, on its head. And I think this is one of the, so this is something I kind of see in analysis of Lillian's work in particular. Um, people can, I think, are sometimes really trying to look for pictures of kind of sexual liberation um, amongst the men and women he depicts. And you know, he produced so much work that it is easy to pull out a few examples of what might look like a really liberated feminine sexuality, kind of casting off the bourgeois uh, kind of norms and expectations. But at the same time, I often do see a parallel intrusion of a desire to really conform to kind of um, maybe more bourgeois norms of sexuality, like the kind of punishment of this woman in this uh, trifold uh, picture, who seems to be kind of punished with death for her pursuit of kind of sexual satisfaction. So I think there really is a kind of a push and pull um, of the kind of um, uh, the kind of anti-bourgeois and the bourgeois um, when it comes to gender roles within the movement. And I mean, certainly thinking about it broadly, for every example of a kind of liberated woman we might find in an instance of visual art, we can find a handful of articles saying, oh no, women, uh, your role is to be within the home, educating the children. And there's an absolutely kind of, an absolute flood of kind of bourgeois expectations for the position that women have. I mean, I think this makes it very interesting that the tension is, is made so visible in Lillian's art in particular. Um, and I think this is one of the things I'm trying to do, maybe in bringing in the language of age to help unpack what degeneration, how it might be expressed visually, is to help try and kind of navigate between these um, these uh, the push and pull of these uh, these various different ideas uh, within the community. So, so um, I, I guess I would say on top of that, though, I'm just going to push back a little bit because, you know, I think of the Salome, it's very strong mm -hmm. in my head, but I was also thinking while you were talking about kind of all the Klimt paintings that I, that I can think of, they're all women. They're very erotic and the erotic, you know, and, and the men kind of take a back, uh, you know, a, a, um, a back burner uh, role, except for maybe the, the Klimt, the, the big freeze he did on Beethoven Ninth Symphony. But um, Salome, you know, she's she, if you think of the Beardsley project, she's she, she's a she's a well, she's not even a woman. She's a 60 year old girl. And, you know, historically, who knows what she wants? She's got the head of John the Baptist on a platter. And I don't I don't know. I think, you know, she's a very, very strong woman. Um, I, I guess that so that was the final comment to that. I had one other question, by the way, and you talked about the idea of youth and youthfulness at the very beginning and that you said, you know, for for, for for, for for kind of the cultural Zionists, this is a very strong um, uh, trope. But it was for all of the Zionist groups, I would say. I mean, the idea of youth, and I mean, certainly for for you know my guys later on, the fascist, you know, pro-fascist Zionists. I mean, youth was what was it, you know? And and so I suppose you could maybe talk about the idea of youth is as it, it, just for a few seconds in in terms of all of this, you know, youth youth for Zionism, full stop, maybe. Yeah. Um. So, I mean, it's a, I think one of the things that I see in this time period is people kind of battling for who gets to be the youngest or the most innovative. 
Um, and there's some kind of uh, fantastic remarks. Um, there's a letter that Martin Buber wrote to his partner after the uh, Fifth Zionist Congress. Um, and he said to her, you know, like a group of modernists has formed. I'm, uh, the ancients are terribly scared of us. And so this is him calling 41 year old Theodore Herzl an ancient. And so I think there's a real kind of polemical slinging around of who's old, who's kind of young, um, who gets the kind of claim, the mantle of most kind of free thinking. Um, and I wonder if perhaps um, another kind of approach that's maybe more precise is thinking about uh, kind of the generations. It, maybe the kind of spectrum of old to young is too imprecise and too easily mobilised. But thinking about it in terms of generations, um, who kind of grew up reading who, who got to push back on who, and I think this is one of the things that we see, particularly in the relationship between this young Yiddish community um, and Ahavaram, who is a kind of position as, yes, in some ways a real inspiration, but also nevertheless a member of a kind of prior generation who they might take inspiration from, but they are carving out a distinctive identity um, in contrast to. So I suppose it's all just to say that um, youthfulness is probably such a useful term. Youthfulness is a useful term. Uh, because it's so imprecise um, and it's not just bodily claims to usefulness. Um, we also see kind of claims to intellectual usefulness, artistic usefulness, um, and it's really just a completely fluid term, which I think gets to serve a variety of kind of completely uh, inconsistent or incompatible claims across different communities. Mm -hmm. It's really interesting. I've got one question from Marcus um, published and I would urge anyone who's got more questions to please, please kind of put them up there. Um, otherwise, you're going to get lots of my questions. <laughs> interesting. Um, Marcus says, many thanks for your excellent presentation. Could I ask you about your scholarship on Paula Winkler, Buber's wife? I would like to know if there were other notable female writers who were the wives of Zionist thinkers and were working in a similar vein as exhibited by Paula. And what were the relations between Paula and those women, if any? Could you also explain how Paula was treated by Buber's male and female contemporaries in Jerusalem at the time they lived there? Uh, great, thank you. There's lots of um, lots of questions within there. I might just pull up one or two um, threads in the kind of um, uh, to to keep my answer bounded because I love talking about Paula and I'll happily talk about her for a huge amount of time. Um, so she uh, had a really interesting, um, relatively small, but I think quite substantial um, set of contributions uh, to um, this kind of cultural Zionist community. And she wrote really powerfully um, about the role that women could play um, in Zionism. Um, and as I uh, briefly touched upon a moment ago, there were all sorts of very kind of typically kind of bourgeois notions about women, uh, you know, staying in the home, raising children, providing a kind of um, domestic complement to their husbands, public facing institution building intellectual activities. And what Paula does is kind of she sticks to the suggestion that women's primary contributions might be in the home. But in contrast to others, including in contrast to Martin Buber, she doesn't kind of show these as the pale reflection or the counterpart, but she situates this maternal activity as a really um, profoundly valuable, creative um, kind of, I think in some ways, quietly radical um, account of what um, maternal innovation in terms of storytelling um, and kind of the creation of this domestic space might look like. And she also talks about the creation of these 
domestic spaces as not only facilitating children's education, but also facilitating kind of salon style discussion environments for the broader community. So without kind of completely breaking out of the association of women with the domestic space, she nevertheless kind of gives a really um, powerful account of how this is a site of them um, of kind of profound creativity um, at the hands of women. Um, in terms of other notable writers who were the wives, um, there was lot, all sorts of um, illicit relationships going on amongst this community. So I would say that the other notable female figures weren't necessarily married to um, the men in the community. Uh, we have um, a string of people um, that uh, were kind of at least briefly in um, kind of uh, relationships with some of these male writers. And I'll just mention one of them as an example. Um, Lillian had a brief um, kind of sexual relationship, um, not much is known about it, but I think it's clear that they did have a relationship with a really fascinating um, uh, poet uh, called Maria Eichhorn, um, who wrote under the name Bella Rosa, um, who was uh, kind of, as far as I understand, the sole uh, woman who has uh, participated in the kind of masochistic um, kind of school of poetry um, in this time period. Um, and like uh, Paula Bugo, she, um, she was born um, to a Catholic family, um, whereas Paula went on to convert to Judaism after she'd had children with a married Martin. So as far as I'm aware, didn't. Um, and I don't think her relationship with Lily necessarily lasted. But she wrote the most kind of fascinating poetry, which blended really um, subversive kind of masochistic themes about um, sexual pain and the kind of um, I don't know, really quite detailed in, uh, accounts of these sexual relationships and then somehow kind of seamlessly blended them into Zionist accounts of the kind of um, the erotic object of Zionist affection. And so she's, I think, an example of one of the really interesting kind of peripheral figures um, amongst the cultural Zionist community who were tied to some of the kind of famous men and um, by virtue of having a relationship, but who um, indeed kind of drew in some uh, really kind of subversive and diverse kind of creative forms of expression. And I should say that in my kind of deliberate move away from focusing on the kind of institutional or Zionist political activities of people like Weizmann and Moskin, I'm trying to make room to find these interesting figures on the periphery of the community who show its kind of, um, you know, the real diversity and range of kind of creative expression that was facilitated by the group and that was kind of part of their broader uh, kind of cultural um, kind of talk it, I suppose. Can I have a question? Let me put myself up. Uh, Rose, thank you so much for this uh, fascinating talk. Again, as Peter says, there's so much to discuss and uh, also so much to comment. <laughs> so just by, as a brief comment, really, this is not a question, but uh, more of a comment. Um, it's fascinating to see, uh, to, to watch Lillian's images and to think about the argument that Zionism is a secularization of Judaism. If this makes any sense of secularization, then I don't understand anything. To put, yeah, to put Herzl as Moses and say that this is not, you know, not theological is, uh, is fascinating. Uh, also, he has this uh, image, uh, how do you say, Jugend, youth, where it's, it's a womb-like picture of, uh, of uh, you know, a female uh, um, character, which is yeah, extremely telling to what uh, you were also discussing. My question has to do with youth, though, not with that. Um, I obviously understand not only the Zionists, but, you know, this general uh, uh, sense that youth has a promise of a future and breaking away from the past. Of they look, you know, they, they look 
forward, uh, the old people look backward and so forth. But we also must necessarily, you know, these uh, painters or artists included, that youth is a passing phase. That all of, you know, that, that all of humanity goes through this graduate. And all of those celebrated youthful, half-naked, masculine, I don't know what they call pioneers would ultimately age. So how did they view the idea of not uh, not old age, but of aging, of becoming old? Yeah. Thanks. Um, that's a, a really a really good question and something I've been um, thinking about a lot. Um, I think they didn't, and I think one of the reasons they got away with not addressing this was because they were only coherent as a movement for a few years. So, although a few of them did have children during this time period, um, uh, they didn't have to kind of confront um, their own aging process. So one of the virtues of this being just a kind of snapshot of youthful exuberance and expression is that they didn't necessarily have to address this. But I think for me, they like the failure to address it is one of the things that opens up the real kind of gulf between this collective uh, movement between age groups in a non-linear way and then the very kind of linear process of aging um, that happens to the individual and can't be halted and I think there's a real kind of um, this kind of opens up a really paradoxical element in their logic of aging and the aging process which just goes kind of unacknowledged and the triptych from Uri which shows um, the uh, the man um, going through these three different stages of life is, I think for me, the only kind of acknowledgement of the aging process for an individual that I've found. Um, and Buber's interpretation and analysis of this image is really interesting. He reads it basically as a tragedy because the man is alone. And then he contrasts it favorably with the portrait of Adam and Eve, which he suggests is really significant because they're not just two human beings, but they're a pair of human beings. So I think insofar as it is addressed, um, the movement um, towards kind of old age is somehow softened by the unfolding of new generations, the building of community. But I still don't really see how this solves the problem because if all that's happening is there's a passing of the torch from one young person to another, it still doesn't really address what happens to the differently aged members of the community or the people that don't have children or whatever it is. I think it's a kind of a cop out really to just um, project a kind of series of views um, rather than actually acknowledging the, the aging process. Mm -hmm. So <laughs> if you don't, I'm going to kind of pick up on the youth um, theme just one one last time, just kind of trailing on from what Yakov said. I mean, I was just thinking about this too, that, you know, we, we kind of focus so much on youth around this period, you know, from certainly from the beginning of the 20th century till maybe, well, to the end of the Second World War. And um, I just wonder how much of it is just, it just happened all, you know, kind of in every direction. It was just, it was just um, a byproduct of mass politics anyway. And, you know, we, we make such a strong, um, um, we focus so strongly on it, but I suppose, I, I guess what I, I don't know if this is a question or a comment at this stage, but we'll see in a second. Um, I guess I'm just trying to understand the difference between youth as, let's say, not an ideology, but kind of going more in that direction and youth as, as a political tool, I guess that's maybe you could just talk a little bit about that in relation to what you've been saying. And um, I've got one more comment from Marcus, but I'll just wait for your answer first to this so we don't lose the thread. Mm -hmm. Um, 
so yeah, I think uh, there's one um, sense uh, that is just kind of a political or a polemical tool uh, that to label something as ancient is just a really easy way to say uh, this is, you know, this is not relevant. Uh, I'm offering something that is relevant because it's youthful. And I think this is a kind of a very casual uh, use of words relating to youth that doesn't necessarily map on to the more kind of um, profound and fleshed out associations with the qualities or experiences of youthfulness. Um, and in this community, um, so I give the examples of kind of um, embodied youthfulness, uh, partly because they're represented, I think, so exquisitely in the visual art. But there's also a lot of um, literature that they produced that uh, really strongly associates uh, youthfulness or the youthful kind of imperative um, with the kind of um, the artistic process. And then also for Buber in particular, the nature of a movement in itself, that he defines a movement as the kind of um, rising up of kind of useful imperatives amongst the community, this kind of restless useful energy for him becomes a movement when these energies are directed towards a common cause. Um, and so there's a real kind of um, view of the Zionist movement, or at least the kind of productive Zionist movement as fueled by an energy that is essentially youthful. Um, and he has all sorts of recurring images about seeds sprouting, shoots rising up, and this being the kind of like the fodder for movement as a whole. Um, and then also in reference to kind of more specific ideas like creativity, it's the unfurling of this kind of latent potential in this very um, kind of nascent impulse that, that is what feeds specific activities such as producing uh, the kind of Zionist art. Um, that is the kind of foundation that the the kind of movement needed to build upon. So I think for me, the kind of um, slightly more fleshed out um, account of what youthfulness was uh, portrayed kind of offers slightly deeper insights into the community's thought and ideology than the kind of throwaway comments of like, oh, perhaps you're so ancient. Um, I think that is more of a kind of a passing and just kind of clinical tool. Thank you very much, Russ. Um, so Marcus had one more question. He said, I did not catch Maria's surname. Could you repeat it? Thanks. Uh, yeah, it's Eichhorn, E-I-C-H-H-R-I-N. <laughs> um, I just wonder if there are uh, just another second to pause to see if there are any more questions. No. Um, OK, Rose. Um, thank you so so much um, for what for for really really an interesting presentation um, and kind of goes right to the heart of what I, I think we're trying to achieve with this seminar is kind of you know looking at things from a different perspective. Um, Yakov, I'm not sure what to say about next term except that I guess you know we'll all find out in due course um, <laughs> what what, we're go what, what the what the term card will be and I suspect it will still be online at that stage, but. Yeah. Um, yeah. yeah, it's a safe assumption, but stay tuned. If you are not on our mailing list, please just send us an email and we'll put you on our mailing list and you know about all the other programs we're running too. So, so thank you all very much. And Rose, uh, thank you all. Uh, thank you. Sorry, <laughs> there's only one of you. <laughs> so much for a really, really interesting presentation. Yeah, thank you for having me. Okay.